Salam. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ajam podcast. I'm your host, Rustin. Today I'm here with Iskander Sadeghi Brujirdi, and we are talking to him about his new book, Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran. Iskander, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a while now um, about the formation of the reformist movement and the ideas behind it. Can you lay down the the ideological and political landscape of 1979? Like, how does reformism come to be in this post-revolutionary Iranian setting? Okay, so anyone who's familiar with kind of the ideological sort of scene, both in the run-up to 1979 and in the subsequent years, two sort of dominant strands of Marxism-Leninism on the one hand and Islamism. Obviously, they're profoundly variegated. There's lots of differences and disagreements, but these are the two key forces. And obviously, there is very much a symbiosis between the two in their various political iterations, and they're both playing off one another. They're informing one another. They're very much concerned with many of the same issues, sort of revolving around imperialism, the role of the United States uh, in supporting the Shah's regime, questions of revolution, how the state should be taken over, how the state can be used to transform society in the process, how you can bring about a more sort of uh, a just political and social settlements. Um, following the actual revolution itself, there was seen as a need to place the Islamist project, as it were, on its own footing and distinguish itself very much from Marxism, which was you know, seen as materialist, godless, all these sorts of things. And that's sort of the opening. Reform is not really a question. If we recall the sort of first provisional government after the revolution, it's headed by uh, Mehdi Bazargan, who's sort of seen as this quintessential Islamic liberal a very liberal temperament. And we have to understand that he was very much against the grain of the revolution um, and against sort of the dominant ideological currents. And he has this fantastic interview with Hamid Al-Ghar, who's obviously a well-known scholar who was at Berkeley, but also was the translator of Khomeini's Islamic State, Velayat al book, where Al-Ghar's basically asking him about his relationship with Ayatollah Khomeini. And he's saying, I don't understand how this elderly cleric has this incredible connection with the youth. And he's basically really absolutely befuddled. And he said, I myself was in the university. I had like contact with students and all these sorts of things. So, you know, what I essentially want to say is that the sort of reformist outlook, Islamic liberalism, which would later then become popularized, we'd see in the late 1890s particularly, was very much like a fish out of water at the time. Let's think about the term reform. It's inherently antithetical to the idea of revolution. What happens in uh, the 1980s? What happens with the post-Khomeinist circumstance in which you have this ideological move away from revolution and one towards gradual change? What is happening during the Iraq War? What is happening with the death of Khomeini that starts to see this attention more towards this idea of uh, reform? The irony of the reform movement is that many of the key politicians, many of them were actually Islamists but on the left wing, uh, many of these individuals in the Islamic left who had occupied leading positions in the Iranian state, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini was to a large extent actually seen as their patron and they viewed him as such. But following his death, we see this constellation of what is often referred to the modern right um, and the traditional right. They kind of decide that the Islamic left is a liability. They always talk about imperialism, foreign adventurism, you know, exporting the revolution. This is burdensome. So we need to have a more pragmatic reorientation. It's often referred to literature as problematic, but it's the sort of thermidor of the Iranian revolution. They say, okay, we need to now have a detente with our neighbors. We need to actually think how we're going to rebuild Iran, obviously, because it's just absolutely ravaged and starved for capital in the aftermath of the Iran-Iraq war. How are we going to attract foreign investment? How are we going to mend relations, potentially, with Europe and other powers? Because, obviously, Iran was profoundly isolated in the course of the Iran-Iraq war. 
So in the course of actually trying to, in a sense, reorient themselves, this pragmatic orientation, as it were, they decide to push out the Islamic left through various means. The watershed moment is really 1992 with the fourth major selections where we see, for the first time, the Guardian Council avails itself of this power called Nezarate Istisfabi, which is often translated quite clunkily as approbatory supervision, where they had the right to supervise elections, but now it availed itself of the right to disqualify candidates based on whether they were seen as loyal to the system and all these sorts of things. And we see a mass expulsion of people on the Islamic left. And basically what I try to trace is what are they doing after they've been expelled from the state? And what I basically try to show is how they entered all sorts of various think tanks to keep them preoccupied so that they could no longer be in the majlis, they could no longer be in, for instance, the prosecutor's office, they could no longer be in the judiciary, they could no longer be in various decisive or important institutions within the state apparatus, but they were given various projects and whatnot. We see reading groups trying to re-examine the legacy, as it were, of Ayatollah Khomeini, the Islamic Revolution, what they thought they were doing, very much a reflection on their own experiences, and I tried to look at it in a very kind of a more network way, but also I tried to situate Iran in a more global kind of context. I'm trying to say, okay, the Iranian context is obviously very important. This factional jockeying is very important. But when you're actually reading these proto-reformists, the term Estar Talab hasn't become common currency yet. It's really after Khatami in the subsequent years, quite late on, that it would become a sort of a national point of reference. But what we see actually in this global context is they're very much in conversation with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I'm sure you've encountered it, and we see it very much in think tanks in Washington. That's what this is, constant comparison of Iran and the Soviet Union and containment. And it's this obviously really, really awful way of speaking about these issues. But interestingly enough, what we observe, we're sort of looking at all these different periodicals, their newspapers, their own conversations at the time. They're very much engaged on this question of what led to the Soviet Union's collapse. And it's a big deal. I mean, they're having symposiums of, you know, is Marxism dead? is revolution inherently destructive and as the road to serfdom comes through any kind of attempt at big large social transformation alluding to Hayekian mantras so when you situate in the global context we actually see they're in conversation with these big big global changes which are happening and they've essentially reached the conclusion for the most part that you know there is really no alternative to liberal capitalism really but so that being said, they obviously are very concerned as a project to show that democracy and whatnot is compatible with Islam and why they're not inherently in contradiction. And what are these reformists reading at this moment? Who are they engaging with? You, you mentioned that like, you know, it's part of this global discussion of the fall of the Soviet Union, but in terms of their development of a theoretical framework, also a prescription for what their ideal version of the Islamic Republic should be or could be, what are the reformists thinking about in the 1990s? Many of the critiques of, for instance, right-wing forces, the right-wing clergy, various conservative institutions in Iran, I mean, they're highly influenced by, actually, Cold War-era critiques of the Soviet Union. And they're kind of recalibrated in critiques, then, of the Iranian state. So some of the thinkers, just to give you an idea, is obviously Karl Popper, the French intellectual Raymond Aron, who was very important also as a major critic of Marxism in France. He wrote a book called The Opium of the Intellectuals, and he's very much thinking about how ideology is the problem and how Marxism has seduced the intelligentsia and all these sorts of things. Friedrich Hayek, their use of him is slightly different, but it's critiquing the idea of even big government and planning. In the late 90s, we see the emergence of this discourse around civil society. That's the solution. That will bring democracy. Big government is a problem. We need to critique government. It's too heavy. It's inefficient. All these sorts of things we see emerging. And whether, how these translate into the political scene is itself a very, very messy and complicated question. 
But part of the thing that was actually interesting for me, like seeing them reading these texts, was some of the unexpected kind of historical affinities. So I think I mentioned it to you briefly, but we see certain texts which were translated by third force, uh, social democrats who had broken with the Tudor party and were critiquing the Tudor party. In essence, the Soviet Union as well had translated numerous sort of texts of Andre Gude's visit to the Soviet Union. Milovan Gilas, who's a famous Yugoslavian, previously in the state, very much uh, close to Tito, and then breaks with it and writes a famous book called The New Class. And we see these translations, which Iranian Social Democrats had sort of undertaken and actually popularized to some extent, being revisited in the 90s in a very, very different context by a very different set of people for very different ends. So it's like a really curious kind of affinity between these very different intellectual trends, as it were, within Iranian history. So yeah, I try to look at this genealogy also on engagement with Cold War era liberalism and how that's actually shaped a kind of political rationality within Iran that's evolved throughout the 1990s and shaped very much the political imagination of the reformists and the ideological terrain in which they're contesting for power. You know, there's this caricature of Iran as trying to wade its way through this revolutionary period of trying to create their own idea of what Islamic Republic is. And like clearly your work and other work has shown that like, you know, this engagement with writing all over the world and theory all over the world is something that you can point to. The fact that we're dealing with this end of history that happens in the 1990s, it would shock a lot of people to think that, yeah, that's also what's being discussed in, in Iran as a solution. Yeah, very much. And the turn to sort of Cold War liberalism and this idea that any kind of radical transformation will result in violence, will result in catastrophe, will result in authoritarianism and all these sorts of things. It's very much a reaction on the part of obviously these Islamic leftists who then would go on to become reformists. I mean, it's very much informed by their own personal experiences. So you have this interesting dialectic, as it were, between the, obviously their personal experiences, then the theories which they take up. Obviously, the provenance of those theories is also important, but then you also see how these theories lead to this process of recognition and misrecognition of what's actually happening in Iran. So when you agglomerate you know, the Iranian state, and you can think of it in terms of the new class and the Soviet Union and all these sorts of things, that you're obviously missing so much in this process, but you actually, you know, kind of set your parameters. So it leads to sort of all other sort of various knock-on effects which come out of this process of misrecognition. And you you see this process where they're sort of playing with certain theories which will be taken up, others will not resonate, whereas other ones will sort of, you know, metastasize and will become very much part of uh, the popular lexicon where people were sort of talking about, you know, whether it's their rights or even they're talking about falsifiability as a notion which is uh, uh, very important in Popper's uh, philosophy and his sort of critique of, uh, for instance, Marxism posing itself as a, as a science. So he says, you know, if it's not falsifiable, then it's not really, uh, you can't be called a science, for instance. So this actually gets, I mean, these sorts of uh, keywords, as it were, enter the, the, the popular lexicon where people are actually speaking about politics at the time. And you actually even see this, for instance, in letters um, to various reformist newspapers, reformist publications, and you actually see sort of Iranians very much tapping into uh, this sort of language. And obviously the Iranians who are, are, many of them are actually the product in a way of the Islamic Republic in so far as we see through the 80s and the 90s, just a huge swath, like, like millions of people going through the Iranian sort of university system, Donishkar Azad and whatnot, which begins to emerge obviously uh, in the late 80s. Um, so many of this, this readership is deeply engaged um, deeply captivated by this discourse. And this is why, I mean, I, I do think it actually, um, I, the way I frame it, actually, I kind of invert Ranajit Gur's famous uh, phrase when he's talking about the Indian bourgeoisie. Um, it's like dominance without hegemony. I kind of think of the Iranian reformers as having uh, hegemony. They transform the, the ideological terrain, but not, they, don't have dom they, they can't dominate in a sense because they don't control 
these key sort of institutions within the state apparatus, which are the organs, mechanisms of coercion and whatnot. Um, so you have this bifurcation in the Iranian state, which and how that plays out, obviously, throughout the Khatami era is obviously a, a very difficult and sort of knotty process. This is a great way to transition to what happens when reformists take power or are elected to power. So can you just give us a brief rundown as to why the election of Khatami was this watershed moment? What occurred once you had reformists kind of enter back into the positions that were able to then compete with other ideological forces in Iran? Yeah, so Khatami is elected to great fanfare. The whole of the establishment is itself deeply surprised. You know, 20 million voted for him, 70% of the electorate. He was, uh, he was a minister of culture, but he was really seen as the underdog. He was seen as not having a chance. Um, his rival, Hajj Asad Islam and Nata Nuri, was seen as definitely the favoured candidate. But no, he, he wins, and it's a great surprise to him. And actually, just to sort of relate it to what I was just talking to before, when many of these sort of proto-reformists were in various think tanks and universities and going back to do take PhDs and all these sorts of things and rethinking their, their sort of project, uh, when they reflect on it, they said, we had absolutely no idea that he would win. We did not think for one second. What we essentially wanted to do was try and get a foot back in, in the door so we thought we'd get 3 million, 4 million votes maximum. Um, that's what we thought. And we thought that would be sort of, you know, give us a stake again and we could build on that. The, you know, what happens ultimately is no, they absolutely take over the executive. It was actually so unexpected that Mohammad Reza Khatami, Khatami's brother, said, I, I thought it was so unlikely that I actually went for a conference in Australia the day after the election, because I was like, this is done. It's done and dusted. Uh, let's go. And then he actually finds out his brother's obviously elected. So I just wanted to see you know, the magnitude of you know, this surprise. Because um, obviously what you'll often find in Iranian circles, sometimes certain in diaspora, you know, it's all rigged. It's all been decided beforehand. And here we really see this uh, element of, sort of contingency, unexpected sort of uh, thing. So, but after the election, Khatami came on a platform of kind of the rule of law, guaranteeing citizens' rights. He wasn't coming as, I'm going to reform the system. Like, that often tends to be forgotten. And when you read the literature and the run-up to the election, he's not speaking in those terms at all. So what we see subsequently with his sort of also promotion of the discourse of civil society, which I was talking about before, and this is itself is an outcome, both of actually practical limitations, because they just simply don't control many state institutions, which are very much in the hands of uh, the right, as it were. But they basically focus on ideological production, uh, propagating the kind of the reformist mission following his election. So what they do is actually set up newspapers. They set up a whole raft of newspapers, called sort of another spring, as it were, of sort of the press between 1997 and probably 1999, 2000. And we just see an absolute flourishing of the press in this period. It's not simply just random people setting these things up. It's actually leading people from the Islamic left who are setting up these newspapers. So the editor of uh, Sobe Emruz was Saeed Hajarian. Many, many leading sort of figures. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily even go into politics. They would actually go into the press because it was very much sort of this fourth estate that could hold power to account. And this actually again goes back to their whole kind of social ontology, uh, how politics ought to be conducted. This is very much informed by their notions of you know, political change, political transformation, how we ought to actually realize that. And so they think it's obviously through the press, through the fourth estate, through civil society, through voluntary associations. Khatami sort of alluding to Tocqueville and all these sorts of things. So the press at this point is very vibrant and transmitting many of the kind of key religious intellectual ideas which had already been sort of been thought about in Kehana Farhangi in the late 80s and then Kian, another very, very important reformist periodical, sort of the early mid-90s. And we see basically these popularized through the press on a massive scale. Another very important newspaper is one called Jama'a Society. And it's the first, really, the newspaper that's really thought about reform. Like, what is reform? How should we think about reform? And this is where this really enters the political lexicon on a huge scale. 
scale, which previously it didn't, because people just would, weren't calling themselves uh, reformists uh, by any means. What happens to reformism after watching Khatami's administration in terms of various political intrigues, but also being sidelined or prevented from carrying out particular reforms? How does this actually affect reformism? To be honest, I think reformism still hasn't solved this quandary in many ways. You were talking about intrigue, so obviously they're in a very buoyant position. You know, there's euphoria following his election. People who are actually part of that project very much think of it in this way. So to say the right was very much taken aback. It didn't actually know how to respond um, initially. It was shocked. And just as the reformers didn't necessarily have any really well-conceived plans of what they're going to do, because it was unexpected. Uh, so it takes about, we see this flourishing press. We see lots of citizen journalism, lots of critiques, lots of uh, really incredible investigative journalism in this time, which obviously is beginning to prod and question certain regions of the state which uh, had, had never been uh, hitherto you know, queried and questioned and investigated in the way they had. And it takes about two years till we start seeing a pushback. So we see through the judiciary, many of these newspapers are increasingly shut down. We see famous student demonstrations in 1999. And also we see through sort of the intelligence ministry, sort of the systematic kind of, yeah, they call the famous, they call the chain murders, where a whole raft of uh, uh, secular, predominantly, intellectuals are killed. And the thing that's actually interesting about that whole experience is that we see people like Saida Hajarian, who's a very important reformist uh, strategic thinker and uh, key kind of uh, Khatami aide, who was previously in the intelligence ministry, actually, and was one of the founders of the intelligence ministry, uh, manages to, through various connections, to leak the story of who was responsible, uh, gives it to Khatami, who then sort of says, okay, we need to hold this to account. And ultimately, the intelligence minister is forced, who is sort of the province of the Supreme, is forced to resign. And it's sort of seen as the first instance, not only is it quite, it's a very sort of, it's a dark time in Iranian history, but it's also seen as an instance where uh, that ministry was held uh, to account. Um, so also, on the other hand, we also see an important development in sort of these council um, and uh, municipal village elections in 1999, which was overseen by Mustafa Tajzadeh, who was a very important figure in the Mujahideen organization of the Islamic Revolution, where we see for the first time, you know, hundreds of thousands of people actually standing in municipal and village um, elections. This was obviously something which was in the constitution, but had never been activated. And it was actually, you know, it was one of Ayatollah Talaghani's key things which he wanted to be included. And we see it activated for the first time in this period. Um, and that's still with us till today. And um, these are some sort of, sort of the successes, but this constant sort of they're embattled. And this is what I'm talking about, this sort of dichotomy between the hegemony and domination. And ultimately what we see is, uh, yeah, these, like the judiciary, the, the sort of security agencies, uh, various sort of, sort of paramilitary, sort of extra-legal groups uh, doing everything they can really to kind of beat back sort of this wave of uh, reformism. And ultimately, I mean, Khatami does propose, does try to put forward a bill called the Twin Bills, which was tr going to try and actually also limit the powers of the Guardian Council to veto electoral candidates because they basically had banked on electoralism. They said, okay, if we, we need to limit the powers of the Guardian Council so we can stand in elections and people uh, can vote for us, essentially, and then we can build on the gains which we've had and we can sort of enter other areas within the state and change things. And that's obviously rejected and, put, you know, is uh, by the Guardian in council, it doesn't happen. And unfortunately, in many respects, I mean, you know, uh, we see this growing apathy in the latter stage of the reform uh, movement because despite, obviously, this hegemonic, this sort of ideological hegemony, they're not able to 
uh, bring about these grand uh, transformations. And part of it is obviously the actual institutional barriers, but part of it is also this wariness of uh, mobilizing people because exactly they're, they're very concerned, um, like I said, with minimizing the state, but also they don't really, they're unable to recognize with this political ontology, this sort of social ontology that they have, sort of non-institutionalized political forms of rebellion and protest, and they don't know how to incorporate them necessarily into the reformist project. So you have this, for instance, again, Saeed Hajarian, who's a very, like, again, a very important figure in all this, had this notion that you kind of have to mobilize from below, and then you bargain from above. And he was... Uh, they were on the more, you could say, radical, practically-minded, sort of strategic wing of the reformers, and he's ultimately not listened to, really. Um, uh, he's seen as, you know, this, is, you know, this isn't going to work, this is actually going to result in uh, worse conflicts, uh, uh, it's gonna re we're not going to have any gains as a result of this, because it's going to provoke a really strong backlash um, against us. So, there is, what I try to show is that, the, you know, the reformist terrain itself is deeply variegated, many fundamental, like any ideological formation, there are real disagreements over substantive issues. And I mean, I was talking to somebody about this sort of recently, um, and often, like a refrain that you'll often hear, particularly people on the left, is, uh, oh, these reformists, uh, they're just part of the same, uh, they're part of this, the political class, which of course they are, uh, they're all the same, there's no difference, they were all, they all basically were, you know, killers and uh, horrible people and uh, in the in the 1980s and they're just now they've just kind of you know rebranding themselves and I mean uh, as someone who's kind of considers himself on that part of the ideological on the left but uh, the interesting thing by actually really going into uh, reformism speaking with them meeting them uh, you know reading you know you know, in like so huge amounts of sort of uh, articles and documents and whatnot pertaining to this project, you realize, no, it is actually very, very, you know, so obviously more complex than that. And you realize, you know, there is a genuine transformation uh, which they undertake. And part of it's actually this kind of, you could say, this parallax view where they've kind of shifted from within the state to outside of the state, and that's transformed the kind of their, their ideological orientation. Uh, but it's genuine. It's uh, even if the kind of the, the, the reasons which which uh, led up to it or provoked it were the fact that they were marginalized and pushed out of uh, power. Um, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on reformism now. I mean, clearly you're talking about um, this issue of uh, what happens with this crackdown, what happens with this curtailing. Uh, you have the election of Ahmadinejad, and of course you have 2009, and the Green Movement surrounding the election of Ahmadinejad's second term against Mir Hossein Mousavi. Basically from 2005 to 2009 to 2018, right? That's a huge time period. But huge, yeah. what is the state of reformism now? I end the book essentially with the December-January protests, the provincial protests, which you know hit sort of close to 80 cities across the country, and in many respects, kind of unprecedented. And I wasn't—I'm not a sociologist. Uh, I wasn't looking kind of at the social basis of these protests, particularly what that wasn't what was sort of interesting. What was interesting to me was um, the reformist reaction. So whether it's uh, very prominent, so people like Abbas Abdi, Saida Hajarian himself, um, but the one that really stood out, and that's sort of the way I opened the sort of the conclusion of the book, is an interview with Behzad Nabavi, this character who I mentioned, who was formerly uh, like a Islamist but left-leaning guerrilla. Um, he says, sort of in the aftermath of these Iran, these recent protests in Iran, um, that you know 
I reject all revolutions, from the French Revolution to the Arab Spring, sort of, you know, all revolutions are a disaster. So, I mean, it really was a, it was a fitting way to kind of uh, end the book with this kind of, you know, this paradox, which is kind of, to some extent, at the heart of the book itself, kind of, you know, how did these really committed revolutionaries, profoundly political, um, have, you know, reached this conclusion, you know, revolution is inherently, this inherent evil, and ideology and sort of, Everything is sort of emptied also of political content in many respects, but the key thing that was of interest to me is sort of why can't the reformists uh, within this kind of ideational sort of paradigm which they are working and operating in, they're unable to recognize and reach out and even try to incorporate these protesters because they're unfamiliar, they're not within uh, the frameworks to which they're, you know, they're, they're accustomed and actually you know, shape their thinking about these issues. And they sort of non-institutionalized. They weren't part of a reformist formation. They weren't linked to the reformist political class in any way. They weren't sort of uh, uh, in a party that was associated with them. They were sort of, you know, these were outraged protesters, you know, entering the streets, slogans, denouncing, uh, all in sundry. And they were unable to engage. And obviously the question is why. And that's what I tried to essentially you know, explain. So it was a sort of a fitting uh, conclusion to the book. Skanda, thank you so much. Uh, this was a very enlightening conversation. I hope our listeners have learned a lot about the development of reformism in Iran. So thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been wonderful. Once again, the title of the book is Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran, and it's published by Cambridge University Press. For our listeners, as always, if you want to continue the conversation, find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Until next time. Thanks.